0: It is the business of the times to change, Mr. Halecki, and it is the business of gentlemen to change with them. So writes Amor Toles, author of A Gentleman in Moscow, which we will be talking about today here on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen.
1: And here with my mustaches full sail, I'm Zachary Kellyan, author and man on his third martini.
0: As always, we're coming to you from the Stardust Lounge here in Seattle, Washington, on a very rainy night, but I'm excited to be talking about a book that has meant quite a bit to me. Um, I read it first maybe nine months ago, and I I keep thinking about it. I keep considering what it means to me, what it means uh, to be like the character, the Count, and I'm anxious to talk about it here today. Do you see yourself as like the Count? while I wouldn't mind being trapped in hotels for the rest of my life, I think it would be limiting to be stuck in one hotel for the rest of my
1: life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been anxious to talk to you uh, about this one because I, for lack of a more eloquent way of saying it, I did not like this book. And so I knew as I was reading it, oh, McCallum's going to love this. He's going to eat it up. So uh, well, I, I you look were fo- very right. I, I look forward to hearing what you liked about it, and I look forward to being scornful of that. Well, I'm going to try and change your mind. Sounds
0: good. And if not, I'll, I'll keep pouring drinks or at least having Crystal here, uh, our wonderful bar back, who seems to do almost all the work at the bar. I don't Yeah, I'm not sure that. if that's
1: the right title anymore. Um, but.
0: but we can definitely fix that situation. So if nothing else, we'll have a good time. And since we are talking about Russia, since we are talking about a man who enjoys simple cocktails with two ingredients, as we'll talk about later... Uh, what are we drinking tonight here, Zach?
1: Uh, we're just drinking your basic vodka martini. Uh, came into favor in the United States in the 1920s with um, gin martinis. As uh, vodka became uh, available from Russia after the Bolshevik Re- Revolution, uh, became somewhat of a novelty in the United States. And that's why we're drinking it today. Some good Russian uh, potato vodka.
0: Polish potato vodka, ah, okay. actually. Okay. Who is not sponsoring our
1: episode, by the way. Or are they? They, they, they are not. No, not up around on my call sheet.
0: Before we move on, as I said, the Count really likes simple cocktails. In fact, he has this to say on the topic. Both of them were holding drinks in a striking shade of magenta. I gather from Adrius that concoction contains ten different ingredients. In addition to vodka, rum, brandy, and grenadine, it boasts an extraction of rose, a dash of bitters, and a melted lollipop. But a cocktail is not meant to be a melange. It is not a potpourri or an Easter parade. At its best, a cocktail should be crisp, elegant, sincere, and limited to two ingredients. Just two? Yes. But they must be two ingredients that complement each other that laugh at each other's jokes and make allowances for each other's faults, and that never shout over each other in conversation. Like gin and tonic, he said, pointing to his drink. Or bourbon and water, or whiskey and soda. Shaking his head, he raised his glass and drank from it. Excuse me for expounding. So, one of the things about this book, and I will say right off the bat, that the one thing I don't like about this book is it is very long. It, it is, is. It is. The language is very flowery. The the thoughts and introspection I love, but there's a lot of it here. So, in, in our discussion here, as we bring this book to you over the next four episodes of Literary Guys, we're going to try and boil it down to the key elements of the narrative but also focus more on the characters. As always, this is a literary guy, so we're going to talk about the masculinity of the various characters that we have. And we're going to attack it in a way where the first episode will be about the early life of the Count living in the Metropole.
1: The, the moustached life of the Count. Yes, as
0: it were. indeed. And then we're going to talk about the time when he knew Nina at various parts of her life. We're then going to talk about the parts of his life that involve Sophia And then we're going to talk about how the book wraps itself up into what may or may not be a satisfying conclusion, but I'm not entirely sure that that's really the point here of this novel at all. As always, we we have expected that you have read the book. We'll give a quick synopsis of it, and I'll, I'll hand it over to Zach in order to see if he can summarize this book in 50 words or less. But we really do hope that you've Uh, gone in to read this to understand the nuance because I think what we're going to talk about here today uh, will be that much more meaningful
1: yeah you know just to sum it up and as you have requested 50 words or less it's really the perfect book for a pandemic Uh, man is confined to one place for his entire life the end that actually would not
0: be consistent with the ending of the book
1: that's true he met some people along the way some people met him I don't you're giving him way too much agency to say he met anyone so
0: I would actually summarize the book very differently, because okay. what we okay. saw was the formation of the world's greatest waiter <laughs> and his ability in order to be something incredible at this place called the Boyarski, which is the, the fancy restaurant in the Hotel Metropole. And I, I do say that somewhat jokingly. I know that's not the story here, but one of the things we see about the Count is he, he has all this life experience. All these things that he has thought about, that he has, as I said before, introspected about, and he's able to bring that all to bear. And the way in which he thinks about food, and he talks about, about pairing food, about, about wine, I mean, there's literally a, a chapter or two of this book entirely about wine bottles, that he brings this all to bear in a way that I think in a lot of other novels would be just just, well, unbearable. And instead, it, it's something quite special and the way that the character develops. But of course, uh, he, he cannot be that forever. And spoiler alert, he, he eventually finds a way to break free.:
1: A way to break free finds him.
0: It's a good point. That's a good point. Like would he have been satisfied to stay in the Metropole for his whole life? Let's save that for three episodes from now. <laughs> uh, we, gotta, we gotta tease this a little bit. But I think that'll be a good discussion.
1: Right. So the, the novel starts off intriguingly enough. We have a man with a great, magnificent mustache who is on a trial during the or after, I guess, the Bolshevik Revolution by the Red Russians, who are basically killing off their entire aristocracy, anybody of noble birth or upbringing, and uh, saved just narrowly by this revolutionary poem attributed to him and they agree to put him on house arrest for the rest of his life. It's a it's a very intriguing start to the novel. I love the Russian Revolution, everything that came with with the October and the February Revolutions and the Red and White Russians. It's a very interesting time in world history and I really liked the way this world was painted and the way it was handled. I don't feel like uh, Amor Tolls really went into depth of the politics behind the revolution. We just kind of saw it as it seeped into the metropole, and as the Count kind of witnessed it and caught furtive glimpses of it from inside his house arrest. So that part of it was very interesting to me and I did very much enjoy the opening chapters of this novel.
0: Well, because they involve mustaches.
1: Mostly because they involve yeah. mustaches. So from a book
0: club perspective, I think it's very good here that this is not a book that in the first I don't know 20 pages you're thinking oh I know what this plot is gonna be it's gonna right. it's gonna be this or this and you know it's gonna be this torrid romance or it's gonna be you know the, the conflict between these two characters no uh, it literally I've never read a book like this I mean one could argue that it's more like a stranded on a desert island kind of literary
1: interesting uh, yeah, type yeah, sure.
0: approach that you might take but really anything could happen in the way in which the metropole is brought to life that it is essentially a world unto itself a world that is not of its time actually the count in many ways is not of his time either i would argue that they are a perfect match for each other
1: well and this book is written not of its time i mean if you look at the season that we've kind of outlined for our first year of Literary Guys, this is the most modern novel we're reading, but I feel in many ways it's written in the most antiquated form of any of the things that we've read.
0: Compared with what we talked about in our first episode of Literary Guys, The Old Man and the Sea, that I really couldn't think of something much more different without going into like James Joyce or... You know, yeah, really yeah, going yeah. off in, in that particular angle. So.
1: And, you know, I do appreciate the writing. I'm going to be critical of this novel uh, throughout this podcast, but I do think Amor Tulls is an amazing writer. I mean, there, there's some exquisite language in here. I can only imagine some of the passages that you've picked out or cherry-picked because I think there really is some wonderful turns of phrases and some really interesting glimpses at life. All that to say, uh, get to the freaking point, man. You're writing about the Russian Revolution. You got Rasputin walking around with his big horse cock, banging the Tsarists and manipulating things behind the scenes. You've got battles. You've got sinking ships. You've got civil wars within civil wars within civil wars. Yet, you know, we spend half the novel, like you said, talking about different types of wine. It's a little frustrating. And
0: let's not focus exclusively on wine here. This book also deals with one of my favorite subjects in all of life, which is caviar. And if I can read from the book. Please. And at the center of every table, whether it was hosted by the high or the humble, was a serving of caviar. For it is the genius of this particular delicacy that it may be enjoyed by the ounce or the pound.
1: Now, you are one of the few men I know who uh, uses the Amazon Dash button when you're ordering from Amazon. But I believe you use it specifically for caviar. Is that true or false?
0: Uh, it's actually true um, that I have a Amazon dash button for caviar spoons. Mother of Pearl.
1: And what are your thoughts on caviar spoons?
0: I mean, I, I certainly would never use metal. That's, uh-huh. I mean, I, I just wouldn't do that. Uh, I, I think I would have more to to add to what are the, the proper accoutrements. I'm simple. I like a little blini, a little... Creme fraiche and maybe a little bit of chive. I'm not a chopped egg guy, so, um, you know, no need for that. And for those of you who enjoyed that discussion, you can join me on our sister podcast, Talking Caviar, yes.
1: <laughs>
0: where we focus not just on caviar, but many types of
1: roe from all over the world. And if you found any of that interesting, then this is the book for you.
0: Yes. Actually, I think, I think Zach, you, you make a, a wonderful point there because that is. That is exactly why I think this book resonates.
1: It shows a very... I mean, it's right there in the title, The Gentleman of Moscow. It's a very specific type of man, one that I feel you have modeled your life after uh, very, very well. Well, thank you. So I think you said it you know, earlier that uh, this is kind of like being stranded on a desert island a little bit. There's, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, Elements to this novel even though it is in one of the nicest hotels one could imagine of the absence of freedom and kind of being stripped of that in fact um, I believe the count at one point compares himself to Edmund Dante uh, the uh, count of Monte Cristo in terms of his sense of imprisonment
0: Yeah, I think he does
1: and you know he he's tried in this trial this puppet government tries him um, And I'm, I'm this was probably 1917 1918 when this novels opening up. I think so Yeah, so this is one of the transitional governments from Tsarist Russia into what became the Soviet Union, and he's brought there with armed guards, they take him to his lavish penthouse apartment, give him, I don't know, 10 minutes to take anything he wants out of that, and then they kind of put him in servants' quarters. And all this happens very quickly, right at the beginning of the book. And for me, one of the things that really struck me was how the Count reacted to it. He wasn't really putting up much of a fight from what I could see. You know, He kind of had this laissez-faire attitude and really fought his battles, quote-unquote, in terms of, I'm going to bring all my books, even though it was impractical for the new kind of cubby they were moving him to. You know, He fought these battles that only seemed to matter to him or man of his standing and stature, really seemed removed from the actual realities of what was happening to his home country at the time. So
0: do you think that the Count had expected to still be there when you have this many transitional governments? You can start to imagine that, well, you know, maybe this one's not in my favor, but the one after it will be.
1: You know, that's an interesting point. At this time in Russia, certainly nobody knew. Um, There were civil wars within civil wars happening um, in various cities throughout Russia. The Bolsheviks under Lenin really haven't even gotten a foothold at this time yet. So they didn't know where Russia was going to go. So I think you do bring up a good point that his lack of agency that I perceive in these opening chapters may just be a man who's biding his time.
0: But he knew that he needed to get the items of value out of his room. The the desk, which was really his saving
1: grace. Yes. A very convenient desk that had a hollow leg with, with a Roman gold coin's... Uh, they were gold coins of some nature. Okay, yeah. Very interesting plot point. Uh, that's obviously what's going to keep him afloat for the many decades that he's in the Metropole. A little too convenient for my tastes, but it got us to where we needed to be.
0: But what was he really spending his money on at the end of the day? Like, True. he, in later episodes, we will talk about the job that, that he has mm-hmm. as a is a waiter and his ability to execute that, but... What could he buy? Like, if anything, he seemed like he was pilfering items uh, more so <laughs> than he was actually buying them. Through the the majority of the book, it's
1: very true. Let's before we wrap up this podcast. So let's get to the the most dramatic occurrence in this entire novel that happens maybe thirty pages in. His first barber appointment. Uh oh, very yeah. excited about this. He's he's counting down the seconds to get down to this famous barber in the Metropole so that he can get his weekly trim. I think it might be. Uh, apparently cuts in line in front of a man who might be a part of the proletariat, perhaps. We don't really know. Right. Sits in the chair. And, and what happens, Dr. McAllen? What happens to this beautiful, beautiful man's mustache?
0: I can't even think of the word. Violated is what comes Vi- to mind. Yes, violated, yes.
1: Uh, half of his mustache is cut off. And for me, half my interest in the book was lost from that point on.
0: Well, I will say that you'll probably be happy to know that the upcoming miniseries based on this book will be played by one of the best mustachioed men in Hollywood today, Mr. Kenneth Branagh.
1: I mean, you know Branagh, when he eventually does the adaptation of this, is going to bring the most ridiculous mustache to bear. And we're going to have to feel this pain all over again when he loses it. We're going to go back and we're going to watch The Hunger Games and we're going to be
0: like, that seemed pretty reasonable. <laughs> I think now would be a good time to uh, pause from a word from our sponsor.
1: And uh, how appropriate, given your love and our recent conversation about this, we're sponsored by the Caviar Coalition. Oh. Let me get the copy out here. Caviar, the people's snack. For the purpose of this advertisement, the people refer to the bourgeoisie's right Russian czarists and their European backers. Caviar is not for anyone of the working class or those with leftist leanings. Caviar, it's for everyone. Everyone of royal lineage. I'm really happy we were able to sign them for, uh, for this
0: podcast. I mean, especially, we're, we're, we're very yeah. new.
1: You know, we can, we can uh, thank you for that. I think you brought your connections to bear there.
0: Well, you're welcome. So the last thing I wanted to talk about today was the idea of masculinity and freedom. Mm-hmm. That I, I think in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about free will and that men are often portrayed in literature as having to make the tough decisions. And so when you have your freedom to leave even the building taken away from you, the question becomes, do you really have the capability to to exercise that kind of agency on your own life that we consider to be so deeply masculine
1: clearly the cat doesn 't have any agency because uh, and he would agree with you because he is there for a long ass time indeed i don't i don 't think that that 's my read on it. you know I think yes, his freedom is nominally stripped from him, but Far better men than him during the revolution lost their lives for something they believed in. What does the Count believe in? Where are his passions? Everything just kind of happens to him, including this imprisonment, including his downgrading of a room, including him getting his mustache trimmed off. The guy just walks right up, grabs him by the collar, cuts the mustache and runs. This guy doesn't seem to match any of my definitions of a man who's purposeful, of a man who takes control of a situation and of his life, of a man who has agency.
0: The way I look at it, and this harkens back to the way we opened the episode, is this quote, which I think is essentially the quote about the entire life of the Count, which is, it is the business of gentlemen to change with the times. I think the Count did have big agency. He did have influence. He did have the impact of someone in the class in which he was at. And he found the biggest influence that he could have inside of the Metropole. He made the Metropole's business his business. Eventually. Eventually, yes. But it doesn't say it is the business of gentlemen to change immediately.
1: <laughs> it's the business of gentlemen to change leisurely over the course of 500 pages and many florid, flowery descriptions. I'm not arguing with that.
0: <laughs> okay, I think that's a great point to call it for this episode.
1: Dr. McCallum, always a pleasure.
0: Zach, it's always great having you here. I want to thank the Stardust and also Edgar Bergamot, who's been playing so well this evening. Hope you'll join us in our next episode where we're going to be talking about how the Count's life was changed and in many ways upended by a young girl named Nina. So until then, this has been Literary Guys signing off.